When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Nichelle De Silva, and I am delighted to be joined by Edward S. Cook, who is the Charles F. Montgomery Professor of American Decorative Arts at Yale University. We'll be talking about his new book, Global Objects Toward a Connected Art History, published by Princeton University Press in 2022. Welcome, Ned, and thank you so much for joining us today. Pleasure to be here. Could you begin in in classic New Books Network style by telling us a bit about yourself and your background and and how you came to your research interests? Basically, what what led you to to write this book? That's never a direct line, is it? Uh, That um, I started off as an undergrad here at Yale um, with an interest in history, uh, American history, and was sort of not political history, not military history, not economic history. Um, I wasn't quite sure what it was going to be initially, um, but I became interested in my junior year of all of a sudden with the art galleries collection here, I had access to objects, um, things that survived um, from the 17th, 18th, early 19th century at that point. And all of a sudden I realized that these were incredible uh, archival materials um, that allowed me to think about sort of everyday life. Um, And I started to think about the colonial period in America. Um, I started engaging with objects as nonverbal kinds of um, communication um, and archive material, um, and then sort of started to build from there um, as I went to graduate school started layering in labor history, bits of anthropology, um, and sort of almost developing this idea of objects, not simply as formal kinds of materials, but also um, from an artisanal point of view. I became very interested in craftsman-client relationships, um, how objects are part of this sort of triangulation of uh, interaction um, that oftentimes expressed um, points of view or input from both the consumer as well as the producer um, and continued on uh, in that vein and sort of found myself teaching at that point pretty much sort of traditional American um, decorative arts with the emphasis in the sort of late 70s, early 80s was probably on American made. This was in the aftermath of the bicentennial. So a lot of people were interested in what was made in America. There's a long tradition of American decorative arts. But as I came back to, and I I sort of increased the time range into the um, present day, um, so from the 17th century to the present. But when I came back to teach here at Yale in 92, I was very aware of that it was a different kind of um, world that um, sort of the idea of multiculturalism um, was so much a part of what a contemporary student was interested in at that point. So I started designing courses not on what was made in America, but rather what kind of objects were in America um, that might have been might have been locally made, might have been imported, um, and trying to sort of mix it up a little bit. Um, And what I did was I started following um, sort of the commodity chains, as it were, uh, where these materials, um, objects, and then also materials came from, and to overturn some of the traditional ways that people had been thinking about art history at that point, which was look for an image that was a prototype um, and then say automatically there was a diffusionist argument that it crossed the Atlantic uh, as an idea, as an object, and then it was copied or whatever here in America. And I got more and more involved in thinking about what's going on in an international world. um, And ultimately it led me in the um, early 2010s, as we were debating as a department what to do for an introductory course um, in the history of art, 
how can we have a, a more sort of open-ended uh, kind of introduction so that wasn't just sort of a history of Western art that people who wanted to do East Asian art, African art um, would feel disconnected from? Um, how could we sort of, in other words, come up to speed in terms of what contempt the kind of um, variety of students we have at this point so that people might find a point of entry, a commonality. Um, and I found that, you know, in addition to not sort of being a general um, introduction for people who are history of art majors, wouldn't it be great if someone knew that they were going to be a um, East Asianist, um, but maybe had a smattering of something from Europe or somebody who does American had a smattering of South Asia. Um, and if I could have a course, it would bring a lot of these different things together. And naturally, I came up with the idea of material culture, decorative arts, um, because these are universal um, kinds of objects. And so I came up with a course um, that was an introduction to the history of art that was all about decorative arts in a um, global context. Um, and I thought, these are students who are going to know something about um, what Canton was uh, in the 17th and 18th century, what the Coromandel Coast was for textiles. Um, what about um, copper alloys in Northern Africa? You name it, people could start to see ways in which the world was connected. Um, and I started teaching the course, um, relying heavily on talking to colleagues here, elsewhere to get suggested readings and cobbled something together. And one of the things that I found so interesting is I didn't want to take a, a nation state approach. You know, we're going to land in Europe this week, and then next week we'll be in Asia. And I didn't want to do chronology because I felt like chronology was another one of these um, ways of thinking about an evolutionary um, sense of history. Um, and so the radical turn that I made was I'm going to start with raw materials, and then I'm going to work through um, sort of what I call the concrete, that is materials, processes for realization to kind of... Uh, trade, movement of objects, ideas, craftsmen, technology, um, and then function, but then start to get more and more abstract um, to go into things like memory and gift, um, to go into appearance and surface, to go into touch. Um, so the idea is to sort of start concrete with specifics and then move to the abstract. Um, and I, so I taught, I've taught that for eight years now. Um, and each time, you know, I learn more from continued reading, seeing things, uh, travel, um, student input, um, my teaching fellows who come from a lot of different kinds of uh, specialties, all of which starts to leaven um, the, um, the material I'm working with and finally decided I have to write a book um, on this because just sort of compiling a lot of different, um, you know, reserve readings, electronic resources, it was hard to bring it together. Um, so I just decided I've got to write a book on this. Um, and the students, I mean, that was the other thing that really um, encouraged me. All, everybody who had TF for me said, you've got to write a book. Um, this is really important stuff for these students. So I was emboldened by them to do something um, crazy. <laughs> well, your students come through in the book. It, it's really interesting to see the, uh, the acknowledgement you make of them, as well as these ideas that, that, really run through the book, this um, resistance uh, towards using the nation state as a beginning of, of using different terms from that are, you know, used generally within um, current art historical discourse. Uh, and, and you're constantly doing, making a lot, a lot of effort to, to present uh, everyday objects, um, uh, that might not necessarily be thought of as art in ways that, that elevate them. And we'll get into that in a bit. But I do want to focus right now on the, the term global objects because you've, you've spent a lot of time thinking about that term. It's very deliberate. Um, and I wondered if you could just uh, talk a little bit, explain a little bit why why you landed on, on that picture. Yeah, by all means. So... I use the term global, and it's important to say I use global rather than globalization, because I think globalization sort of as this universalizing, flattening um, 
is not an effective way to think of this. Um, what I was really interested in is, as I said earlier, sort of transcending uh, nation state boundaries um, and thinking about the fluidity of the world um, that oftentimes ideas, objects, people and technologies flow in multi-directional ways. It's not as if it's going only from A to B, but sometimes while something's going from A to B to C, then something's going from C to D to A. Um, and there's this kind of swirling of ripples. Um, and I'm really reminded um, of um, something like uh, Deepesh uh, um idea of sort of provincializing Europe, um, that that was one of the real um, things that was so important to um, Chakravarti's work is that um, it is this kind of uh, way of thinking about a connected world um, and not sort of um, giving a, um, a pure center or anything like that, but there are multiple centers um, and there are literally things that are crossing um, right over each other uh, at different points. And so in the idea of ideas, um, not just inspiration, which oftentimes assumes a linearity, but actually mm -hmm. thinking about the ways of um, different uh, time, different space. Um, you know, the historian Zoltan Biederman uh, came up with this term glocal um, to talk about South Asia. Um, and I like that one um, because it, and it really sort of says it's an overlay. You know, there's a global kind of network, but there are local networks too. And it's something that I really try to be attentive to, um, to thinking about um, there are so many currents there, you know, there are currents on the top of the water and then there are currents down below, uh, sort of in the colder waters, uh, as it were, um, that are more, maybe more local. And it's that idea of sort of, what was the classic, um, bumper sticker that used to be, you know, um, think global, act locally. Um, so I like the idea of sort of like either the Chakrabarty's idea of the global or, um, Biederman's notion about global, um, that seemed to sort of. I feel comfortable with that kind of um, way of thinking about connection, not leveling, but connection. And then I use the term object um, because I find, um, you know, there, there are some other terms like artifact and things like that. Decorative art is a historical term, you know, from a very specific point in time in the late 19th century. Um, and I sort of, people get so enamored with a Heidegger sense of the thing um, or Bill Brown's thing theory um, talking about, um, you know, objects are mere functional things. Um, and a thing is the kind of uh, a more abstract, meaningful, um, you know, it's, it's, it's basically creating a new hierarchy of, uh, of everyday objects. Um, but I liked, I think object actually, the problem with thing theory is that it really um, dematerializes objects. It's the discourse around them that, and all of a sudden I'm reminded of um, Justin Pfeiffer's book, The Phantom Tollbooth, um, a child's book, um, in which when people don't pay attention to things, they disappear, like whole architecture disappears. And so to me, like thing theory, objects disappear um, because people just talk about them. And what I'm interested in is sort of, the, the material, you know, the material object, um, and the fact that yes, it's functional, but function is lots of different things. In addition to meaning, symbolism, you know, readaptation. I mean, there's so many ways that one. I think of object as being a much more expansive term than the way Heidegger and others have tried to portray it. Yeah, I could really see your um, your grappling with this. Um as you um as you as you wrote the book and i was particularly excited to see uh, the reference the way you engaged with Biedemann as both a scholar of and a native of sri lanka so so that was a lot of fun to see and i was really impressed the way you were able to compress your discussion of say trade routes into you know a very few pages and it became very clear that the way you were able to do this was again not by focusing on uh, nation states or by sort of disaggregating the objects into things, but by sort of following these flows in really interesting ways. Uh, one thing that I'm really sad about in, in terms of a podcast is that there's just no room for images and your book is full of them. Um, and they're not just for show, they do a lot of heavy lifting in articulating the arguments that, that you make in the book. And so 
Before we get into the actual discussion of the images and the kinds of arguments you make with them, I wondered if you could talk a little bit about how you even amassed them, whether they were sort of part of the class, how you went about organizing, because they do comparative work, you use them to contrast different ideas. How did you, in a very mechanical sense, pull these images together? Um, time, travel, um, internet, um, and colleagues, you know, and like going through different writings and, um, and just sort of seeing what keeps appearing. Um, that's the advantage of writing a book like this after teaching a course based, you know, sort of developing ideas and building up uh, a series of images. But, you know, there are little things like I had the opportunity to go to Singapore um, to teach for Yale um, National University in Singapore just for a one week class. And I said, I'm, I really want to go to the Asia Civilizations Museum. That's one of these ones that I've really wanted to see the collection. So I got to go early and spend a lot of time with that collection. Um, and that's, you know, that's what's important is to see some of these um, amazing collections drawn from different regions. Um, and so I, I was able to sequence a lot of uh, travel because um, I also want to see as many things firsthand um, and if possible, handle them. Because as you know, from the last chapter, um, handling objects is critical in terms of weight, surface, temperature, all sorts of um, things that sort of give you some sort of sense of um, the purpose and the possibilities of an object. So, you know, even your discussion about trade routes um, and objects, this is not meant to be a comprehensive encyclopedic book. This is a suggestive book. Um, and it's meant to give um, readers tools to then take what they're reading and thinking about in the book and apply it in a variety of different um, kinds of environments throughout the world. That's the idea. So like this, this is merely um, a, um, a blueprint of sort for what can be done. Yeah. And I'd like to dive now into the work that you're doing in the book, the kinds of tools that you're trying to provide to the reader uh, and perhaps ask you to engage in some ecphrasis because uh, because we can't physically see the, the images in, in the space of the podcast. Um, I really want to use this space to convince listeners that they need to get a hold of this book. So um, one way that you challenge the you know, so-called standard art historical analysis is through a discussion of copies. Um, you are very keen to uh, assure the reader that they're not some poor versions of some ideal form somewhere in the world, but they are very deliberate kinds of translations, and you call them edits, in fact, um, of um, varieties of objects uh, that are coming, you know, sort of that are flowing in and out of, of regions. And so I wondered if you'd be able to describe some of these examples of complex copying that you found generative to articulate to unsettled, very entrenched ideas about the inferiority of the, of the copy and, and why you take care to describe these different kinds of copying that you um, talk about in the book from appropriation to acculturation to adaptation. Yeah, I mean, I think the whole idea of copies comes out of a, a, a couple of different things. One is sort of the typical diffusionist argument um, of sort of thinking about center, center periphery or you know, assuming that there are cultural um, superiorities. Um, and some people, I mean, it's the classic way in which people in uh, England looked at South Asia and thought of um, the fact that the craftsmen in, um, in South Asia were mere copyists. Um, and that was, that was a negative uh, kind of term uh, to them that they didn't understand the human body, the sculptural body or anything like, which is totally rubbish. Um, and it's just sort of a, uh, a cultural construct. And I think that, you know, we place such a great emphasis on quote originality um, about um, the autonomous object um, in modernity. Um, and in fact, one has to understand that um, training um, to become a maker, you're oftentimes tasked with copying things. Um, so that's a very important part of education. Um, but I wanted to go far beyond that and just sort of um, say that 
can we give agency to makers? Um, that's in essence, um, rather than just thinking about it's the consumer only. Um, and, you know, to break it down into these different terms um, that I was using, like appropriation, um, about um, acculturation, adaptation, you know, adaptation becomes so much more about a maker's um, perspective um, as can acculturation, um, which is very different than say something like um, kind of appropriation um, might be more from a consumer's point of view. Somebody else is profiting uh, from that. And so one of the classic examples might be that I really enjoyed doing was um, talking about blue and white ceramics. Um, that whole thing that you know we now tend to think about that as Chinese porcelain, um, when in fact there's a longer kind of history that speaks to an interchange between um, tin glazed earthenware in the Arab Peninsula um, using cobalt uh, blue from uh, the area that is, is greater Iran now um, and how that blue and white then gets traded to China where they're making white stoneware and then start to develop from stoneware to porcelain. And you find at the same time, and that's in the ninth century, um, by the time you get to the 13th century, all of a sudden blue and white porcelain coming out of stoneware technology emerges in Qingdechen in China at the same time that in uh, Isfahan in greater Iran, they start to develop this blue and white with fritware, uh, which is basically said a, a lot of ground quartz, um, not porcelain per se, but ground quartz in kaolin white clay. Um, and the blue is coming from greater Iran. And in fact, in Chen, there's even a reference to using Muslim blue. Um, so there's this way in which these two centers of ceramic, uh, a blue and white ceramic are intertwined. And in fact, if you look at the great royal collections, um, Safavid, Ottoman, um, China, um, you oftentimes see both blue and white fritware and blue and white porcelain. They're, they're, they're equal status. And so Ching De Chen then sort of in, in the uh, Islamic tradition for blue and white continued to be strong through um, the 17th and 18th century. Staffordshire in England wants to enter into the game in the 18th century. So what do they do? They use their technology which is an earthenware base that's using white kale and clay from North Carolina, blended in with local clays to make a whiter body, then using a decoration technique that's not painted, but actually transfer decorated. It's a print technology of using a copper plate engraving, inking it, putting tissue over it, then putting that tissue on the bisque fired ceramic, firing it. So you have this uh, ability to uh, reproduce the same image over and over again to make sets. And they start, even at Spode uh, and others, they start making imaginary Shinwazri Chinese scenes, you know, with pagodas and bridges and flying uh, swallows, etc. cetera. Um, and they start to encroach on the Chinese blue and white porcelain uh, kind of dominance at that time. So what do the Chinese do? They start hand-painting the same scene to ship back to Europe um, as Chinese porcelain imitating transfer-decorated um, refined earthenware, which is also evoking China. And it, and it goes far beyond that, that China then produces this fits, what's called a Fitzhu pattern of porcelain that has a central peony and then four groups of flowers around it, that you look at the way in which the composition exists on the plate. It's, it is transfer decorated, but it's all hand painted. So they're even sort of not just sort of using a Chinese scene that's hand painted, but they're even hand painting a transfer decorated version. So what is that Chinese? Is it English? It's everything. Um, so I think that that kind of attention to the body, the materials, the decoration technique, the imagery, and then the trade routes all go together to make this important. Yeah, I really loved that. The way you sort of were talking about, and then this happens, and then something else happens. And it's sort of, um, 
it, it's almost like turning uh, the book into a kind of detective novel, which I really enjoyed the, of the, the piecing together of, of the story that, that doesn't have one linear narrative. And, and I think that's what I really appreciated, that a book is linear, it, 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 and, and yet you manage to turn this very complex, non-linear story into something that, um, that you could follow, and the image just played a huge role in that. And that's the whole um, idea of connected, you know, sort of like that's why that's in the title as well, is to thinking about connections um, and they go in multiple directions in ways that are unanticipated. Yes, and I really enjoyed that. And, apart, and, and you know, this is, again, very personal to me, again, as someone coming from South Asia who grew up um, learning to appreciate the, the art of copying, of seeing it as... Um, um, a skill, uh, a technique to be admired, and then coming to the U.S. and taking, you know, the the art history one hundred and one classes, in which uh, all that I had learned had been turned on its head. So it was a really, and it, it was, um, I think, a vindicating experience in some ways too to read your book. The uh, other thing that's kind of interesting about that kind of uh, contrast is that a lot of traditional. Um, introductory art history classes are taught with objects that are fixed in place. Sculpture, architecture, uh, I mean, you know, sculpture does move, but for the most part, and then paintings, you could say, are actually fixed in place in museums or in um, elite houses. And what has been so elusive about the kinds of material I'm engaged with is how do you categorize it? And it used to be like, we had a slide library here when I first got here in the pre-digital age and my slides were never in one place. You know, like people in architecture, painting, sculpture, they could go to the country by the artists and date, you know, so like it was nicely organized. And mine was this little corner of the minor arts and, you know, it might be loosely China, um, U.S. or something like that. But, you know, the example of that Chinese porcelain or the Staffordshire um, earthenware how do you describe that? Is that truly English if it's owned in America or based on a Chinese? I mean, that's why I engage. I love this kind of material because it's it's not easy. It's not simple and straightforward. And, and, and that kind of complexity pulls you right in. Yes. And, and, and it really unsettles the idea of, of just the copy um, and really, you know, really makes it um, makes it difficult for you to call it copy. Really, it really is a kind of of, of translation of, of inventiveness. Yeah. The other thing I really appreciate is not only do you unsettle the idea of the copy, you ask readers to re-examine ubiquitous everyday objects that so often get dismissed as, you know, one of many, uh, and you really reinstate their value. Uh, and throughout the book, you do a lot of work to theorize them as highly political objects that have meaning infused, again, by the the act of being moved around globally. Um, again, do you mind talking a little bit about some of these examples, how you put your images to work to, to make these arguments? I should say that at the beginning of each chapter, what I've done is sort of tried to do a really deep dive, um, close consideration of one object or two ob- a pair of objects as a way of bringing some of these ideas to the forefront that then allows me to be a little bit uh, less deep with the others, but still marshalling them in productive ways. Um, so it, I'm, I, I'm glad you got the fact that it's not merely illustrations, but they're actually driving uh, the narrative. I think, you know, one could pick a, a number of different um, kinds of objects Um I guess one that would be really interesting would be the so-called Ashante jug um, from uh, Benin. Um, And I was intrigued with this because it's a large uh, handled pitcher made out of uh, copper alloy, probably a bronze um, kind of material. It was cast uh, in the 14th century um, and it was cast in a kind of uh, technology that's very similar to bell foundries and um, people doing bronze uh, measuring uh, vessels uh, for cookware at this time in that you would have a basically an earthen core and then you'd have uh, this ability to add lettering along the outside uh, as part of the casting. So this is a picture that has um, in Lombardian script, um, a 14th century 
English script. Um, it's got symbols of the crown, um, of the lion rampant, um, etc. So this is a, it's either a royal object or in the royal circle. Um, somebody sort of, you know, probably not the uh, king, but somebody sort of in that circle of acquaintances. And, you know, and therefore, you know, it's heavy. It's big pitcher um, to, to hold some sort of liquid. One doesn't sort of just pick it up um, one-handed unless you're some sort of uh, strongman. Um, so you got a real sense that this was a showpiece, um, that this was intended. Yes, maybe somebody might have poured things or it might have been, you know, displayed, but then used sort of in the kitchen somewhere. Um so it's this big piece. Um, what's curious is it was found in Benin in um, the 1890s um, at, in, when the British basically uh, seized uh, the Benin lands um, and pillaged um, the palace, the so-called uh, Benin bronzes um, that you know were more of these repoussé chased masks um, that uh, are scattered throughout all the prominent museums. But the Asante jug um, was another uh, object that was culled from this um, kind of plunder, um, this seizing um, by the British of an object that was actually thought to be very um, sacred object um, within um, that area of West Africa and was used as a talisman, as, you know, would be carried into battle as protection, would be near different um, sort of uh, worship sites. It had magical kind of connotations to it. Um, and in much of West Africa, um, the copper alloys were actually valued more than gold. Um, it was uh, really a valued material. It actually had value as coming from away from that area. Um, it got repurposed. We don't know how it got there, whether it was trade routes or what. Um, but then the British army seizes it, brings it back to London, and then the person, the um, the officer, ends up giving it to the British Museum, um, sort of as a piece of uh, colonial trophy, uh, if you will. It's put under a plexi bonnet, and it's described as the Asante jug, um, when in fact it's an English uh, pitcher from the 14th century. That kind of history is alighted. Any sense of um, sort of how the uh, people in Benin understood it, uh, its meaning, uh, how they valued it is erased. And it's just considered part of a culture that the British army conquered. Yeah, I, I was blown away by that example uh, because, you know, it also really speaks to the ways in which museum labels, which... You know, try to edify or are expected to edify uh, do, as you say, elide a much longer complex history of, of exchange of of um, uh, of you know, uh, plunder of, of all kinds of things of, of you know uh, trade that happened that that are not neatly put into the, the box like space of the of the label. I mean, it's said in the same way that um, t thinking about enslaved artisans, um, it's tricky um, because, you know, one can talk about examples um, like the Edgefield, South Carolina face jug um, that I illustrated. You know, these are potters who are running um, this production of large storage vessels in South Carolina. Uh, they are the ones who are, uh, in, you know, knowing something about alkaline glaze, who have very sophisticated dragon kilns um, there. And yet um, they are producing this work. And, you know, someone like um, Dave, um, who worked for um, somebody named Drake and became known as Dave Drake, um, is somebody who also becomes literate in the process and starts inscribing his pots um, with different uh, kinds of uh, couplets um, and different kinds of phrases. You know, that's a radical move. Um, but who would know that it was an enslaved potter um, who inscribed that because it's sold by a white owned pottery uh, in, uh, in Edgefield. But they also produced these so-called face jugs, um, which had um, 
oftentimes white kaolin clay for the uh, the eyes and for the teeth. And for the long time, people had just thought, um, oh, here they are just simply copying so-called Toby jugs from England. Um, you know, they were incapable of having their own tradition um, when in fact, there is a evidence that um, they are producing these face jugs um, as sort of in a, a South Carolina version of a Nikisi, uh, a Congo uh, kind of ritualistic object um, that this is meant to be a protecting um, kind of influence. And the face jugs become so important, they are carried north when certain citizens of Edgefield migrate north to Philadelphia and elsewhere. So that's a very political object um, as well. Yeah. Um, and you do a lot of work to, to, I think, bring to the fore those histories that often get um, delighted, swept under the carpet, um, or just uh, it's difficult to tell them sometimes. And, and, and I think you do a lot of work to, to find ways to tell them and to offer a model that others might use to do the same, which I really appreciate. Um, and to this end, you also do a lot of work to bring the the sensation of touch to the fore, which again is quite difficult to do in the space of a book, where even though you have a lot of rich images which do a lot of work, they are two-dimensional and flat, uh, and it's hard to get a sense of the heft, the 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 actual feel of, of, of touching them, of holding them, of using them. And you do a lot of work to help the reader imagine the work that touching, of holding, of using does for the object, and to make that uh, a legitimate and valid part of uh, of art historical scholarship. And I wondered if you could talk about this. You you, you dedicate a whole chapter to to the the process of touching, uh, and to you know you have a section on on uh, the technology of enchantment in general, what something looks like. But half of that is dedicated to touch. And I wondered if you might be able to talk a little bit about um, why you spend this time doing this and sort of how you, how you again, put your objects to work to, to, bring this, to bring this sensation to the fore. Yeah, and I think that touch, you know, the hand is part of it, but even the body, um, you know, how one sits in a chair, um, for instance, or how one, um, you know, pores, uh, you know, the hand is, is definitely part of um, the, um, the eye, the brain and the hand all work together um, as receptors. Um, you know, the most nerve endings we have are in your fingertips. That says a lot. Um, and I find, you know, so this is antithetical to museum work where, you know, you look, don't touch. Um, and and it's one of the things I love teaching this course is that every week I have sections uh, in the art gallery in an, a dedicated object study room um, that I have objects culled from the uh, art gallery's collection and allow students to touch, to look on the inside, to look on the backside, um, to understand what's the difference in texture between um, raffia, um, jute, um, cotton, linen, silk, um, you know, sort of like looking at weaving structure. Um, all this is so important um, and you can't see it if it's on a wall three feet from you. Um, or to think about the inside of a um, of the Ashante um, jug, um, to think about the inside of a drawer of a, uh, of a chest of drawers. You need the you need to have access to that um, because that's oftentimes where economic decisions are made. Um, it gives you a sense of process. Um, and, you know, th it's not as if there's a single process that's popular at any moment in time. Craftsman oftentimes had a number of options. They're choosing an option for a reason. And so it's important, you know, many times people are taught sort of uh, skills of connoisseurship um, of looking at an object and being able to say, is it authentic? Um, you know, what, how was it made? And, but they think of that kind of connoisseurship as an end unto itself. To me, it's the mere beginning. Um, it's how you pick up the physical attributes, but then what are you going to do with what you've noticed? How can you put that not as a means of identification of putting something into a nice little taxonomical pigeonhole, 
But how can you say, oh, you know, at this time, there are all these options. Why does this person go with this? And what's the relationship of the technology to the form, to the imagery? Um, and, you know, it just opens up. And this, that's what the joy of, uh, of teaching this material or writing the book is seeing this kind of lateral thinking um, and touch becomes such an important part of it because that's what got me interested in this, uh, the field to begin with is I remember that the person who taught the course that said it was pivotal was Charles Montgomery, um, who was a curator and professor here. So it's, it's eerie um, in some respects. I, I acknowledge that. Um, but he ran a, a seminar on silver, American silver. Um, and I still remember um, that at that point, he as a curator could allow students to handle with gloves, albeit, but still he could fill tankards and flagons with, um, with soda. Um, he didn't put beer or wine in it, but I still remember to this day of what a pewter, um, kind of mug felt like on my lips versus a silver mug. The silver was much colder than the pewter. And, you know, how can you, how can you know that unless you do this? Um, and, you know, I had a job working in the American arts office my senior year. Um, and one of the things I did was I polished silver, um, and wrote, um, sort of catalog descriptions and things like that. That was, that was an incredible experience to just be handling all that stuff um, while you're polishing it, while you're um, engaged with it. And it's all about touch and thinking about thinness of material, thinking about heft. Um, it gives a whole different perspective. So that's why I wanted to devote a whole chapter to touch because I feel like you learn so much in, by handling an object. So one thing that's really come through in, in, on, the, on the topic of touch is, um, well, or rather something that I've been thinking a lot about as I was reading the book, is the ways in which you include objects that, thanks to museums or other kinds of private collections, you're able to pull them into conversation, into you know um, a series of comparisons and, and contrasts that might not otherwise have been possible if they weren't in these collections. But they're also mediated, again, by connoisseurs, by collectors, by curators. Um, so there's a little bit of a tension there. And I was curious about maybe some of the challenges that you've had to uh, think about as you work with essentially what you have um, in order to, to make the arguments that you do. Yeah, I mean, and I acknowledge that the archive is incomplete um, and you know, that I am dependent on what's in circulation, what's been preserved, um, which ultimately has been the job of museums um, and collectors and the elite um, are the ones who have collected a lot of these things. And so there is a bit of a filter there. Um, I spent a lot of time, you know, underwater archaeology um, has been very helpful with uh, ceramics. Um, and so seeing sherds, um, you know, it's not always what I'm showing images of, um, but oftentimes when you go through the footnotes, you'll see a lot of uh, references to that kind of research that then I'm looking for whole objects that have survived um, that might perhaps give you a better sense. But um, it is, you know, I acknowledge I'm totally dependent on it. And I kept trying to find, you know, one of the, uh, the difficult parts of it is then getting photo permissions in photos and having to send out copies of the book to, I think, 54 different institutions. Um, so I, I had I burned through my allotment very quickly. Um, and But I felt like it was really important to have um, collections from throughout the world, um, not just, you know, what I could find at the Metropolitan Museum of Art or the V&A, uh, but, you know, seeing some of these other places and trying to make sure that um, people would realize that you could go into any museum and even local historical society and find interesting things. Um, so it's still acknowledging um, the way in which I rely on survivability, but oftentimes it's informed as well by archaeology, um, documents, etc. Uh, and to that point, when you, when you set out to write the book, 
who did you imagine as your audience? I mean, I know this came out of your class, and so there's there's the sort of partly I know there's partly that, but I guess I was curious about whether in the writing of the book, as opposed to putting together a syllabus for a class, whether the 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 audience in your head changed at all. Yeah, and that was something that uh, Michelle Comey at Princeton Press, you know, was was interested in the book right from the get go. She heard me describe the course, and uh, and she right away realized, and you know, this is why I liked working with her in the press, um, that this wasn't a textbook per se, but a course book. Um, so to me, and that's why it's suggestive rather than being comprehensive. So I think of it as a course book, but I think of it as something that could be used. Not everybody's going to uh, teach a course. They don't have access to collections the way I do, um, but they might incorporate parts of it in an undergraduate or graduate course, um, whether it's a methods class, whether it's um, something that uh, deals with um, looking at art from specific regions. I actually, and, and then I also, I've always wanted to write things with complex ideas, but presented clearly um, in ways that, you know, are clear and logical. Um, so to me, you know, it's like teaching an introductory course. You've got to make it accessible to a wide audience. And so to me, I wanted a, a book that um, had broad appeal, not popular appeal, but sort of broad academic appeal, but could cross over to people who are sort of lifelong academics too. Yeah. And to that, um, Another question that comes up is um, whose work you found generative in, in writing this book or you know, across, your, across your writing more broadly. Um, whose work, I, I mean, I know um, you, you use the work of Zoltan Biedemann um, to think through, say, the question of the, of the GLOCO, uh, but whose work do you find productively speaks to yours um, that you sort of maybe want to see uh, next to your work on a bookshelf. Wow, I'm I'm an omnivore, <laughs> um, so it's. Uh, I mean, I find myself just sort of reading incredibly widely. But I guess if I had to think about where, who's on my bookshelf, um, I guess there would be two different um, kinds of uh, publications. One would be those from an artisanal point of view, um, to thinking about materials and, uh, and making. So somebody like Tim Ingold, um, would be on one side or, you know, someone like David Pye, who was a design historian, um, in England in the sixties and seventies. Um, it's, it's that kind of work that is very much at the heart of what I'm doing. And then on the other side of me might be people who are interested in the movement of, ideas, objects, et cetera. And I might think of the work of somebody like Nancy Um, who does a lot of work in the, the Arab world, um, in the Indian Ocean. Um, I think of, um, you know, there's a whole series of uh, works that someone like uh, Alexandra Curvello uh, in Portugal, dealing with um, Japan and Portugal and the Portuguese expansion. I mean, these are the I could just keep going on and on, um, but that's the kind of work that I find I'm pivoting between the sort of uh, the movement of objects and then shop floor um, kinds of ideas. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Um, usually I try to close out the conversation by asking authors what is next for them or what they're working on right now, but that feels a bit of an unfair question to you since this book came out so recently. Um, so maybe one question I might ask you is, whether there was something in the book that, or rather something that didn't make its way into the book that you hope might have life in a different form or completely differently, perhaps something that you uh, are able to do now, able to work on now, uh, or something completely non-academic that you're able to do now that the book is finally complete. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, Actually, it was a wonderful um, thing. You know, I had pretty much ready to go. COVID became ideal for just being able to write through um, what I wanted to get done. Um, so the timing on that was uh, was good. So returning to normalcy, um, I hope soon, um, you know, it's sort of like still sort of touch and go um, now, but um, that's something that I'm, I'm certainly looking forward to. I think, you know, I don't see this as an end point uh, in some respects, and I'll be teaching with it for the first time this spring. So it's going to be um, interesting to see 
what effect that has. So I'm kind of open-ended in terms of what's going to happen off of that. But in the meantime, this summer, um, while production was ongoing, I got a chance to do some other writing, some more discrete sort of uh, essay chapters for different publications, uh, compilations. And one was in regard to um, a, um, a conference that was organized in Kyushu um, by um, Anton Schweitzer and my colleague here, Mimi Yang Perksuan, on um, Japan and the sort of early modern world. And you know, there were a series of Japanese specialists, but then I got to be a commentator for the conference, Zoom conference, and then to, was asked to write an essay. So I wrote an essay on ceramic culture and sort of the, the ways in which Portuguese ideas, conditioned ideas about ceramics um, allowed them not to quite understand the Japanese in, um, kind of value system of ceramics um, and how it is played out in a variety of different ways, including um, translations and terms um, you know, they lump everything as earthenware. Um, and it, it's so curious how, um, if you think about sort of I, the idea of ceramic culture, that the Portuguese only um, valued highest um, white, shiny porcelain, lightweight. And the Japanese had a much more sophisticated uh, sense of where stoneware was, where earthenware was, where porcelain was. And the Portuguese, you know, they were kind of... Uh, only interested in one approach, uh, and the rest of it was inferior in some ways. Um, so, I, yeah, I was really interested in that kind of tension um, that existed there. Well, that's really interesting, and and how exciting that you get to teach with this next term too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, um, that 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 sounds like a lot of fun. And thank you so much for making time to chat with me today about your new book. This has been a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you for taking the time to read it um, so thoroughly. Um, my pleasure. No, and it was a joy to do that. And for listeners, this discussion of global objects toward a connected art history by Edward S. Cook, uh, which was published by Princeton University Press in 2022, was brought to you by the New Books Network. And if you enjoyed this episode, please make sure to subscribe to our channel wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you and have a good day.